Hello, it's me again. And if you have no idea what that means and you're like, who's this guy? Uh, then you didn't see the video from two weeks ago. Now, after this is over, if you're watching this on Facebook or on the church app, you can scroll down and find uh, last week's or two weeks ago sermon where I talked about being a willing ambassador. And we used the story of Jonah, which is one of my favorites in all of the Bible. In fact, Jonah chapter two, verse 10 is one of my favorite verses. And I dare you to look it up and not smile when you read it. Now, we talked about being a willing ambassador, and this week we're going to pivot off of that topic and talk about being a willing reconciler. Now, in order to do that, we do need to kind of review what we talked about two weeks ago, and so we're going to go back through what it is to be an ambassador. Now, an ambassador is someone who is involved in bringing two parties together, and in order to do that, there has to be an environment of peace. And so, Throughout today's talk, we're going to talk about seeking the peace and looking for that in everything that we do. Now, even the prophet Jeremiah was faced with this circumstance when he was told by God to give instructions to people who were carried off into exile. The southern kingdom of Israel in Judah, they were carried off into Babylon. And the instructions given to them were, you're going to be there for a while. And so put down roots, do good, be good neighbors to your Babylonian captives and seek the peace for the city where I put you in exile. Listen to Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now that word welfare is the word peace. It's that word where we get shalom, or the root shalom. And so God wanted them to be in those communities where he set them with a purpose and to be seeking the peace. Now, again, the point there is that God put them there on purpose. Now, I'm a native Coloradan, which means, especially in the summer times, I struggle with God setting me here in Houston. The summers are hot here, and I mean really hot. And it's especially flat here in Houston compared to where I grew up. But I found my reason in Acts chapter 17 for why God set me here in Houston for this time and in this place. Acts 17, verse 26. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. Now that's another way of saying he put them in a specific time and a place. Why did he do this? Acts 17, verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So in other words, God put us in a specific time and a place so that people would seek God, reach out for him, and begin a relationship with him. God put us in a time and place to share the gospel, to share the good news, and to talk about our relationship with him. We need to be about why Jesus had to die on the cross, and why it was so important that he rose from the grave three days later. And so if we're to be about the peace of our city, and we're to be people of the cross and the resurrection, and we're to be talking about that, then we need to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is where we started two weeks ago and where we'll be today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. Now, I'm going to read out of the NIV. I usually use the ESV. But this first phrase here, I love out of the NIV. And so if you have a Bible, this is where I would park if I were you following along. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
verses 14 through 20. For Christ's love compels us. That's what the NIV says. In the ESV, it says, for Christ's love controls us. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So there it is. We are called to be willing ambassadors, not ungrateful, sniveling ambassadors like Jonah, who was just rooting for people to get what they deserved. We're actually, as Christians, supposed to be rooting for people to get what we got, though we didn't deserve it. We got mercy and grace and love. And that's what we're supposed to be rooting for in other people. Again, seeking the peace of our city, compelled by the love of Christ, as you saw at the beginning of that passage, and we are his ambassadors. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with the very uh, top verses of that, verses 14 through 16, and now we're going to actually work backwards, starting in verse 20. Again, understanding and taking for granted that we are called to be his ambassadors. We are called to a time and place to represent him, his character, and his message. And to remember that God is appealing to the world. He is imploring the world through us. Now for Jonah and his mission, that took three days in a city of 120,000 people. We live in a city considerably larger than that, and it's gonna take considerably longer than three days. Reconciliation takes a long time. And let's talk frankly for just a second. Reconciliation is a marathon. It's a long distance race. And those are not the races that I frankly excel in. In high school, I was a sprinter. I'm a soccer player by nature and I know soccer is supposed to be an endurance sport, but I was a forward, I was a striker. My whole job was to run from point A to point B as fast as I could with the ball, score a goal, and then wait for the midfielders to run their brains out. That was my job and I liked my job. I like running fast out of the gate. And so when my coaches said, you need to go run cross country in order to get your stamina up, I hated that. Because as soon as the gun went off, I took off off the finish line. And then I found myself really getting tired after the first mile or the second mile, and I started getting passed up. Now I tried to make up that ground at the end, but I never won those races because I couldn't run with pace. I didn't have the discipline to keep my eyes on the prize throughout the entire race. To put it a different way, everybody can run fast when the building is on fire, but not everybody can run with discipline when we're talking about preventing all the fires. Reconciliation is a marathon. It doesn't mean that it's won in the first mile, but we can't sacrifice the first mile and we can't take it easy in the second mile. And so we've got to learn to keep our discipline. We've got to learn to keep our eyes on the prize when we're talking about reconciliation. 
the work of an ambassador takes a long time. And so I, I looked for an example that that would speak to this and maybe get above all of the red, red state, blue state stuff that's going on right now. And so I went all the way back to World War II. Did you know that it took a year and a half to sign the Paris Peace Treaties after the secession of activity in the European theater? It wasn't signed until February 1947. That seems like a long time, but that's nothing compared to how long it took for them to sign the treaty of San Francisco, which officially ended hostilities between the Allies and Japan. It wasn't signed until September 8, 1951, and it didn't go into force until April 28, 1952. That's six years after the surrender in the Pacific. Diplomacy takes a long time. Reconciliation takes a long time. Bringing parties together and establishing that environment of peace takes a long time. It takes skill. It takes the ability to see the big picture. But none of that matters. None of that skill matters if the diplomat cannot represent the country well. If we don't represent Christ well, then it doesn't matter what we're saying. And so now let's look back at verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There is a lot of meat packed between verses 19 and verse 17. And so remember, we're working backward. Now, when it says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, what does that mean? So here's the meta-narrative of the Bible. We all understand that the world is just, it's a little bit off. And, you know, it doesn't take a Christian to understand that. If you walk into Barnes & Noble, assuming that's allowed right now, or if you browse on Amazon, the biggest section of books is self-help books. It's the subject of talk shows. It's the subject of radio shows and podcasts. Everybody is talking about how to apply our knowledge to making our lives better. Everybody gets that the world is off. The world is off for a reason. When God created man and woman, he set them into the garden in Genesis chapter two, and he put them to work. He said, care for my creation. And creation was at peace. It had shalom. And he gave them one rule. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One rule. Now, Adam and Eve probably were a lot like my kids. If I give them one rule, that's the rule that they're gonna break. If I say, don't touch that cookie, they're gonna reach for the cookie. And apparently that's what was going on. But remember, all of this was in an environment of peace. Adam and Eve were created in God's image. That is the Imago Dei, that Selim Elohim in Hebrew, that's the likeness, the reflection of God. And all of this is in an environment of peace. But God still wanted them to have a choice. And so he put the tree there and he said, choose me over that tree, choose me over your agenda. And when given a choice, they chose poorly. And so Eve got the munchies. She gave some of the fruit to Adam who was standing there the whole time. The Bible's very clear that they were both equally complicit. And as soon as they took a bite of whatever fruit that was, apple, peach, pick your favorite fruit of temptation, the creation was broken. That peace, that shalom, was broken because sin had entered in. And we know the effects were instantaneous because they instantly felt shame. They knew that they were naked and they, they said, we've got to hide this. We've got to hide ourselves. We've got to cover ourselves. And so they made some rudimentary clothes and they tried to hide from God. 
as if they were two little kids that had just broken a plate and instead of trying to clean it up, they just ran away hoping their parents would never notice. But God noticed and he got to the bottom of it. And what really happened there was when sin came in, it exposed a problem. And it's a problem that we're still dealing with today. Sin at its core is idolatry. It's a choice where we choose our agenda and our plan over God's. It's treason because what Adam and Eve really wanted to do was they wanted to upset the established hierarchy. They said, God, we know that you're in charge, but we want to be in charge. We want what you have. And so with idolatry and with treason there in the garden, this place of freedom and creation became a place of concealment and shame. And yet, with all of that going on, humanity still wants to fix what's wrong. Every generation looks at the injustice of the world and the abuse and all the other kinds of evil, and we take our best ideas and we say, hey, this is the best that we can come up with, and we try and apply our, our good but still broken ideas to this world that's broken. Instead of saying, God, you created this, how would you have us fix this? And since the fall, this has been going on. Without God, we cannot fix the world and we cannot provide for our own joy. That's what Adam and Eve really wanted to do. They wanted to be in control of their own joy, their own peace, their own satisfaction. They wanted that control. But since Adam and Eve, humans have been finding out we cannot provide for our own joy, peace, and satisfaction. And so Jesus enters into the world to say, you are on a runaway train. You are headed for destruction. You cannot do these things by yourself. You were not created to do these things by yourself. And that's where we get John 3.16, which is one of the most taken advantage of verses in all of Scripture, because we just gloss over it. But taken within the context of the meta narrative, Jesus steps into broken creation, and this is what he does. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now listen to this next verse, which we almost never quote. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. What he's saying is, look, Jesus didn't come in to condemn the world. The world's already doing a great job at that on its own. Jesus came into the world to save the world. He came in to break the cycle. He's saying, I am coming to offer forgiveness and mercy and grace what you need to do is accept those gifts. Believe in me and trust me with your life. Trust me with the peace and the joy and the satisfaction that you so ultimately crave. And by accepting my sacrifice on the cross, life becomes new. He doesn't see us as those treasonous idolaters. He sees us as children in his family. He doesn't see the best efforts as sad as they are. He sees his kids that need help. He doesn't see our mistakes. He sees people who only know good, they just don't know what's best. I heard someone once say, sinner is no longer your identity, but now it's your occasional behavior. And now we find ourselves back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. So given all of that in the meta-narrative, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
All of that is wiped away. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God. It's not from us. We didn't do this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, Jesus was the one who brought the two parties together, God and man, where they were separated by sin. And now he's saying you need to be part of that redemption process. Just like he created Adam and Eve to be part of the caretaking process, he invites us to be part of reinstilling shalom into creation. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, this sounds like a lot of work. This sounds like it's gonna take a long time. How long do we have to be the willing reconcilers that it talks about? Because some of you are thinking, Josh, man, I'm in. I'm compelled by the love of Christ. I am a new creation, but man, I'm exhausted. You don't know some of the people that I know. Um, They just don't want peace. They don't wanna be reconciled. Peace is hard. Trust me, I get it. And this sermon is probably more for me than anybody else because as soon as I'm done recording this, I have to go deal with someone who tagged me on Facebook and said all kinds of things, and I have to go make peace with that person. I get it. Reconciliation is hard. But we're going to turn to the words of Jesus very quickly in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to find some encouragement there. And we're also going to think about the world that we're in. Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this word meek has been so so badly twisted over the years to be thinking of someone who is um, calm and passive and reserved and easily taken advantage of. That's not what the word meek is at all. Especially when it was used in the ancient Greek language, this this concept of meek was someone who was strong but, but reserved, someone who was not easily pushed around but someone who could exert strength if they wanted to. It's this idea, um, uh, David Guzik says, of a strong stallion that was running with purpose instead of just running wild. Here's a quote from a theologian. The meek who can be angry, but restrain their wrath in obedience to the will of God and will not be angry unless they can be angry and not sin, nor will they be easily provoked by others. Does that sound like your definition of meek? Here's another one. The men who suffer wrong without bitterness or desire for revenge. Now, to be meek also means to submit to authorities and to give up our privileges and work in an environment where we may not get everything that we deserve, quote unquote, or have coming to us. And the only way that we can really be meek, the only way that we can serve others without worrying about ourselves and what we have coming to us is if we really bank on the second half of this verse, for they shall inherit the earth. That is us as followers of Jesus, trusting that God has our back, trusting that God really will provide for us and give us what we need so that we don't have to try and fend for it for ourselves. We shall inherit the earth. So we don't need to be worried about our privileges and our rights. We can be meek. We can still be strong. We just don't need to prove it to everybody. Now, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's the only time in the New Testament that this word peacemaker is used. And Jesus is saying it's not just about living in peace. It is about intentionally bringing about peace. It is about encountering evil and overcoming evil with good. 
Now, one way we do that is by spreading the gospel, and, and that comes directly out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Another way we do that is by bringing two people together or two peoples together or two people groups together. And another way we do that is by being the first person to admit they're wrong and going to an injured party and saying, I need to seek your forgiveness. I understand that there is something between us and I will be the person that initiates that peace process. That's especially difficult in this day and age when we live for that drop the mic moment. Whether it's Facebook or Twitter or any of the other social media platforms, we live for the zinger, right? We live for the sarcastic comment that proves to the world how smart and witty that we are. And man, we just blew them up and then walked away. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I only do that when I need to defend the truth or when I need to uh, be, be right on the issues. And so if you're not with that, you must be soft on the issues. I'm not soft on the issues. And to remind you of that, I'll just say that I belong to the denomination that once briefly boycotted Disney, the happiest place on earth. And so I'm not soft on issues. I just think the message of reconciliation can sometimes get lost when we make Mickey Mouse the enemy for 10 minutes. So here's what peacemaking really looks like. This is a quote from John Stott. It is the devil who is a troublemaker. It is God who loves reconciliation. Let me say that again. It is God who loves reconciliation and who now through his children as formerly through his only begotten son is bent on making peace. And I I love that when John Stott says we should be bent on making peace. Now, why? It says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God, which means the world and the reward that we get, the world will know that we're doing it right because they will call us Christians, followers of God. They will say, obviously, you are children of God because you are about making the peace. You are about breaking down walls between people. You are about correcting long-standing wrongs. Now, and again, long-standing wrongs, making peace is not just outlasting other people. It is about correcting long-standing wrongs. And so if we are to be about making this peace, if we are to be about sharing his passion for peace and reconciliation, we will know we're doing it right when the world says, we see Jesus in you. John 13, 35, one of my favorite verses, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, I learned a lot about God when I became a dad, and I've even spoken at your church about some of the things I've learned. And one of the things that I've learned is I can tell my boys that I love them. I can tell my boys that I'm proud of them. But one of the things that they love to hear more than anything else is when I say to somebody else about them, that's my boy. It means that I have identified something that they're doing or some way that they're being that, that, I, that I identify with. And I say, that's my boy. Man, nothing makes them beam like hearing me say, that's my boy. And so when the world sees us acting like Jesus and they call that out and say, oh, that we can see Jesus in you, that should make us beam because that's the goal, that the world sees Jesus in us, not for our own acclaim, not for our own glory, but so that people will come to know him. Remember, we are set in a time and place so that people might come to know him. That is the point and that is the gospel. So there it is. That's reconciliation. 
We are called by God in a time, in a place, and compelled by his love to represent his character and his message to a creation that is separated from him. Every person that you talk with is part of that creation. Every person that you listen to, every person that you dialogue with, every person that you interact with on social media is part of that creation, and they need to hear the gospel. We don't need to just be willing ambassadors. We need to be willing reconcilers. And so I'm gonna leave you with three questions today and then a verse of encouragement. The first question is, who needs to hear your story of faith and how God reconciled you to himself? Who is it in your life that needs to hear your story? Maybe they need to hear a bunch of Bible verses, but they probably need to first hear your testimony, your story of how God worked in your life. The second question is, who is God sending you to as a reconciler, either as a party to bring people together or as the first person to be making peace? And the third question is, are you praying for the peace of our city? Are you praying that God would show you your part in his reconciling work to bring shalom back to his creation? I hope God speaks clearly to you in answer to those three questions. And I'm going to leave you with this verse. This comes out of Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us never grow weary of doing good. Father, I thank you so much that you have called us to be willing ambassadors and to be willing reconcilers. Lord, let us be meek. Let us be peacemakers. Father, let us rely on your word. Let us take comfort in you and all the things that only you can provide. Lord, thank you for being the source of our peace and our joy and our satisfaction. And Lord, as we go into this world, open our eyes, give us opportunities that we may be the people who represent you well, who who take part in that redemption process that you have invited us into. Father, as we go about our day, give us eyes to see opportunities. Give us words to speak. Lord, give us opportunities to encourage people, to share our testimony, to, to just lift people up so that they might see you at work in our lives and so that they might see you at work in their lives. Father, it is about you. It is about your kingdom and your glory. It is about you reconciling the world to yourself. Thank you for allowing us to play a part. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.